The Course of the World's History, Subsection 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel On the Course of the World's History Subsection 2 Universal history, as already demonstrated, shows the development of the consciousness of freedom on the part of spirit and of the consequent realization of that freedom. This development implies a gradation, a series of increasingly adequate expressions or manifestations of freedom, which result from its idea. The logical, and as still more prominent, the dialectical nature of the idea in general, namely, that it is self-determined, that it assumes successive forms which it successively transcends, and by this very process of transcending its earlier stages, gains an affirmative and, in fact, a richer and more concrete shape, this necessity of its nature and the necessary series of pure abstract forms, which the idea successively assumes, is exhibited in the department of logic. Here we need adopt only one of its results, namely, that every step in the process, as differing from any other, has its determinate peculiar principle. In history this principle is idiosyncrasy of spirit, peculiar national genius. It is within the limitations of this idiosyncrasy that the spirit of the nation, concretely manifested, expresses every aspect of its consciousness and will, the whole cycle of its realization. Its religion, its polity, its ethics, its legislation, and even its science, art, and mechanical skill all bear its stamp. These special peculiarities find their key in that common peculiarity, the particular principle that characterizes a people, as, on the other hand, in the facts which history presents in detail, that most common characteristic principle may be detected. That such or such a specific quality constitutes the peculiar genius of a people is the element of our inquiry which must be derived from experience, and historically proved. To accomplish this presupposes not only a disciplined faculty of abstraction, but an intimate acquaintance with the idea. The investigator must be familiar a priori if we like to call it so, with the whole circle of conceptions to which the principles in question belong, just as Kepler, to name the most illustrious example in this mode of philosophizing, must have been familiar a priori with ellipses, with cubes and squares, and with ideas of their relations, before he could discover, from the empirical data, those immortal laws of his, which are none other than forms of thought pertaining to those classes of conceptions. He who is unfamiliar with the science that embraces these abstract elementary conceptions is as little capable, 
though he may have gazed on the firmament and the motions of the celestial bodies for a lifetime, of understanding those laws as of discovering them. From this want of acquaintance with the ideas that relate to the development of freedom proceed a part of those objections which are brought against the philosophical consideration of a science usually regarded as one of mere experience. The so-called a priori method and the attempt to insinuate ideas into the empirical data of history being the chief points in the indictment. Where this deficiency exists, such conceptions appear alien, not lying within the object of investigation. To minds whose training has been narrow and merely subjective, which have not an acquaintance and familiarity with ideas, they are something strange, not embraced in the notion and conception of the subject which their limited intellect forms. Hence, the statement that philosophy does not understand such sciences. It must, indeed, allow that it has not that kind of understanding which is the prevailing one in the domain of those sciences, that it does not proceed according to the categories of such understanding, but according to the categories of reason, though at the same time recognizing that understanding and its true value and position. It must be observed that in this very process of scientific understanding, it is of importance that the essential should be distinguished and brought into relief in contrast with the so-called non-essential. But in order to render this possible, we must know what is essential, and that is, in view of the history of the world in general, the consciousness of freedom and the phases which this consciousness assumes in developing itself. The bearing of historical facts on this category is their bearing on the truly essential, of the difficulties stated and the opposition exhibited to comprehensive conceptions in science, part must be referred to the inability to grasp and to understand ideas. If, in natural history, some monstrous hybrid growth is alleged as an objection to the recognition of clear and indubitable classes or species, a sufficient reply is furnished by a sentiment, often vaguely urged, that the exception confirms the rule, that is the part of a well-defined rule to show the conditions in which it applies, or the deficiency or hybridism of cases that are abnormal. Mere nature is too weak to keep its genera and species pure, when conflicting with alien elementary influences. If, for example, on considering the human organization in its concrete aspect, we assert that brain, heart, and so forth are essential to its organic life, some miserable abortion may be adduced which has, on the whole, the human form, or parts of it, which has been conceived in a human body, and has breathed after birth therefrom, in which, nevertheless, no brain and no heart is found. If such an instance is quoted against the general conception of a human being, the objector persisting in using the name, coupled with a superficial idea respecting it, 
it can be proved that a real concrete human being is a truly different object, that such a being must have a brain in its head and a heart in its breast. A similar process of reasoning is adopted in reference to the correct assertion that genius, talent, moral virtues, and sentiments, and piety may be found in every zone, under all political constitutions and conditions, in confirmation of which examples are forthcoming in abundance. If in this assertion the accompanying distinctions are intended to be repudiated as unimportant or non-essential, reflection evidently limits itself to abstract categories and ignores the specialities of the object in question, which certainly fall under no principle recognized by such categories. That intellectual position which adopts such merely formal points of view presents a vast field for ingenious questions, erudite views, and striking comparisons, for profound-seeming reflections and declamations, which may be rendered so much the more brilliant in proportion as the subject they refer to is indefinite, and are susceptible of new and varied forms in inverse proportion to the importance of the results that can be gained from them and the certainty and rationality of their issues. Under such an aspect, the well-known Indian epopees may be compared with the Homeric. Perhaps, since it is the vastness of the imagination by which poetical genius proves itself, preferred to them, as, on account of the similarity of single strokes of imagination in the attributes of the divinities, it has been contended that Greek mythological forms may be recognized in those of India. Similarly, the Chinese philosophy, as adopting the One as its basis, has been alleged to be the same as at a later period appeared as Eleatic philosophy, and as the Spinozistic system, while, in virtue of its expressing itself also in abstract numbers and lines, Pythagorean and Christian principles have been supposed to be detected in it. Instances of bravery and indomitable courage, traits of magnanimity, of self-denial, and self-sacrifice, which are found among the most savage and the most pusillanimous nations, are regarded as sufficient to support the view that in these nations as much of social virtue and morality may be found as in the most civilized Christian states, or even more. And on this ground a doubt has been suggested whether, in the progress of history and of general culture, mankind have become better, whether their morality has been increased, morality being regarded in a subjective aspect and view as founded on what the agent holds to be right and wrong, good and evil not on a principle which is considered to be in and for itself right and good, or a crime and evil, or on a particular religion believed to be the true one. We may fairly decline on this occasion the task of tracing the formalism and error of such a view, and establishing the true principles of morality, or, rather, of social virtue, in opposition to false morality. For the history of the world occupies a higher ground than that 
on which morality has properly its position, which is personal character, the conscience of individuals, their particular will and mode of action, these have a value, imputation, reward, or punishment proper to themselves. But the absolute aim of spirit requires and accomplishes what providence does, transcends the obligation and the liability to imputation and the ascription of good or bad motives, which attach to individuality in virtue of its social relations. They who, on moral grounds, and consequently with noble intention, have resisted that which the advance of the spiritual idea makes necessary, stand higher in moral worth than those whose crimes have been turned into the means, under the direction of a superior principle, of realizing the purposes of that principle. But in such revolutions, both parties generally stand within the limits of the same circle of transient and corruptible existence. Consequently, it is only a formal rectitude, deserted by the living spirit and by God, which those who stand upon ancient right and order maintain. The deeds of great men, who are the individuals of the world's history, thus appear not only justified in view of that intrinsic result of which they were not conscious, but also from the point of view occupied by the secular moralist. But looked at from this point, moral claims that are irrelevant must not be brought into collision with world historical deeds and their accomplishment. The litany of private virtues modesty, humility, philanthropy, and forbearance, must not be raised against them. The history of the world might, on principle, entirely ignore the circle within which morality and the so much talked of distinction between the moral and the politic lies, not only in abstaining from judgments, for the principles involved and the necessary reference of the deeds in question to those principles are a sufficient judge of them, but in leaving individuals quite out of view and unmentioned. What it has to record is the activity of the spirit of peoples, so that the individual forms which that spirit has assumed in the sphere of outward reality might be left to the delineation of special histories. The same kind of formalism avails itself in its peculiar manner, of the indefiniteness attaching to genius, poetry, and even philosophy, thinks equally that it finds these everywhere. We have here products of reflective thought, and it is familiarity with those general conceptions which single out and name real distinctions without fathoming the true depth of the matter that we call culture. It is something merely formal, inasmuch as it aims at nothing more than the analysis of the subject, whatever it be, into its constituent parts, and the comprehension of these in their logical definitions and forms. It is not the free universality of conception necessary for making an abstract principle the object of consciousness. 
such a consciousness of thought itself and of its forms isolated from a particular object is philosophy this has indeed the condition of its existence in culture that condition being the taking up of the object of thought and at the same time clothing it with the form of universality in such a way that the material content and the form given by the intellect are held in an inseparable state, inseparable to such a degree that the object in question, which, by the analysis of one conception into a multitude of conceptions, is enlarged to an incalculable treasure of thought, is regarded as a merely empirical datum, in whose formation thought has had no share. But it is quite as much an act of thought, of the understanding in particular, to embrace in one simple conception an object which of itself comprehends a concrete and large significance, as earth, man, Alexander, or Caesar, and to designate it by one word, as to resolve such a conception, duly to isolate an idea the conceptions which it contains, and to give them particular names. And in reference to the view which gave occasion to what has just been said, thus much will be clear, that, as reflection produces what we include under the general terms genius, talent, art, science, formal culture, on every grade of intellectual development, not only can, but must grow and attain a mature bloom, while the grade in question is developing itself to a state, and on this basis of civilization is advancing to intelligent reflection and to general forms of thought, as in laws, so in regard to all else. In the very association of men in a state lies the necessity of formal culture, consequently of the rise of the sciences and of a cultivated poetry and art generally. The arts designated plastic require besides, even in their technical aspect, the civilized association of men. The poetic art, which has less need of external requirements and means, and which has the element of immediate existence, the voice, as its material, steps forth with great boldness and with matured expression, even under the conditions presented by a people not yet united in a political combination, since, as remarked above, language attains on its own particular ground a high intellectual development prior to the commencement of civilization. Philosophy also must make its appearance where political life exists, since that in virtue of which any series of phenomena is reduced within the sphere of culture, as above stated, is the form strictly proper to thought, and thus for philosophy, which is nothing other than the consciousness of this form itself, the thinking of thinking the material of which its edifice is to be constructed is already prepared by general culture. 
if in the development of the state itself periods are necessitated which impel the soul of nobler natures to seek refuge from the present in ideal regions in order to find in them that harmony with itself which it can no longer enjoy in the discordant real world where the reflective intelligence attacks all that is holy and deep which had been spontaneously inwrought into the religion laws and manners of nations and brings them down and attenuates them to abstract godless generalities thought will be compelled to become thinking reason with the view of effecting in its own element the restoration of its principles from the ruin to which they had been brought we find then it is true among all world historical peoples poetry plastic art science even philosophy but not only is there a diversity in style and bearing generally but still more remarkably in subject matter and this is a diversity of the most important kind affecting the rationality of that subject matter it is useless for a pretentious aesthetic criticism to demand that our good pleasure should not be made the rule for the matter the substantial part of their contents and to maintain that it is the beautiful form as such the grandeur of the fancy and so forth which fine art aims at and which must be considered and enjoyed by a liberal taste and cultivated mind a healthy intellect does not tolerate such abstractions and cannot assimilate productions of the kind above referred to granted that the indian epopees might be placed on a level with the homeric on account of a number of those qualities of form grandeur of invention and imaginative power liveliness of images and emotions and beauty of diction yet the infinite difference of matter remains consequently one of substantial importance and involving the interest of reason which is immediately concerned with the consciousness of the idea of freedom and its expression in individuals there is not only a classical form but a classical order of subject matter and in a work of art form and subject matter are so closely united that the former can only be classical to the extent to which the latter is so with a fantastical indeterminate material and rule is the essence of reason the form becomes measureless and formless or mean and contracted in the same way in that comparison of the various systems of philosophy of which we have already spoken the only point of importance is overlooked namely the character of that unity which is found alike in the chinese the eleatic and the spinozistic philosophy the distinction between the recognition of that unity as abstract and as concrete concrete to the extent of being a unity in and by itself a unity synonymous with spirit but that coordination proves that it recognizes only such an abstract unity so that while it gives judgment respecting philosophy it is ignorant of that very point which constitutes the interest of philosophy 
but there are also spheres which amid all the variety that is presented in the substantial content of a particular form of culture remain the same the difference above mentioned in art science philosophy concerns the thinking reason and freedom which is the self-consciousness of the former and which has the same one root with thought as it is not the brute but only the man that thinks he only and only because he is a thinking thing has freedom his consciousness imports this that the individual comprehends itself as a person that is recognizes itself in its single existence as possessing universality as capable of abstraction from and of surrendering all speciality and therefore as inherently infinite consequently those spheres of intelligence which lie beyond the limits of this consciousness are a common ground among those substantial distinctions even morality which is so intimately connected with the consciousness of freedom can be very pure while that consciousness is still wanting as far that is to say as it expresses duties and rights only as objective commands or even as far as it remains satisfied with the merely formal elevation of the soul the surrender of the sensual and of all sensual motives in a purely negative self-denying fashion the chinese morality since europeans have become acquainted with it and with the writings of confucius has obtained the greatest praise and proportionate attention from those who are familiar with christian morality there is a similar acknowledgment of the sublimity with which the indian religion and poetry a statement that must however be limited to the higher kind but especially the indian philosophy expatiate upon and demand the removal and sacrifice of sensuality yet both these nations are it must be confessed entirely wanting in the essential consciousness of the idea of freedom to the chinese their moral laws are just like natural laws external positive commands claims established by force compulsory duties or rules of courtesy towards each other freedom through which alone the essential determinations of reason become moral sentiments is wanting morality is a political affair and its laws are administered by officers of government and legal tribunals their treatises upon it which are not law books but are certainly addressed to the subject of will and individual disposition read as do the moral writings of the stoics like a string of commands stated as necessary for realizing the goal of happiness so that it seems to be left free to men on their part to adopt such commands to observe them or not while the conception of an abstract subject a wise man forms the culminating point among the chinese as also among the stoic moralists also in the indian doctrine of the renunciation of the sensuality of desires and earthly interests 
positive moral freedom is not the object and end, but the annihilation of consciousness, spiritual and even physical privation of life. It is the concrete spirit of a people which we have distinctly to recognize, and since it is spirit, it can only be comprehended spiritually, that is, by thought. It is this alone which takes the lead in all the deeds and tendencies of that people, and which is occupied in realizing itself, in satisfying its ideal and becoming self-conscious, for its great business is self-production. But for spirit, the highest attainment is self-knowledge, an advance not only to the intuition but to the thought, the clear conception of itself. This it must and is also destined to accomplish, but the accomplishment is at the same time its dissolution, and the rise of another spirit, another world historical people, another epoch of universal history. This transition and connection leads us to the connection of the whole, the idea of the world's history as such, which we have now to consider more closely, and of which we have to give a representation. End The Course of the World's History Subsection 2 This recording is in the public domain.